Friends, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Job. Job chapter 42. We're going to read the first six verses of the last chapter of the book of Job. If you do have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 446. The book of Job opens by introducing us to Job himself, a righteous man who walks before the Lord faithfully and who has been blessed with great wealth and great health and a great family and all kinds of material possessions. Throughout the course of the story then, for reasons that are unknown to Job but known to God and known to the reader, all of this is stripped from him. His wealth, his health, his very family, all of his children die. Throughout the course of the story, we're then introduced to three of Job's friends who seek to come alongside him and comfort him, and uh, really it could not be more harmful. They, they, their, their help actually peaks in the first week they arrive when they commit to sitting together in silence. As soon as that is over, they start to speak, and their counsel is far from helpful. The Lord remonstrate, uh, Job remonstrates with the Lord as to why this has all come upon him, and then in chapter 38, the Lord appears to Job and begins to question him. Following this encounter with God himself, Job gives his response in in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 42. So let's read these together as we launch into our reflections on suffering. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to reflect upon this theme of suffering, we pray once again that you would be our teacher. Lord, I ask that you would overrule the folly of my heart and the folly of my lips, that what is spoken would indeed be in accord with your word. And that because of that, because of the power that's in your word, your spirit would be alive and active to to change us. Give us hearts and minds that are receptive to your truth. And be with us, we ask in your son's name. Amen. You know, or at least I hope you know, that I love being pastor at McLean Press. Great joy and privilege in my life. And you know, at least I hope you know, that I I love preaching on a week-to-week basis. Sharing God's word with God's people here is a great privilege indeed. I also want you to know, though, that this week of preparation was not enjoyable. This week of preparation was, was difficult and challenging. Why? Really because I spent so much time reflecting upon the depth of suffering that's in our world. The depth of suffering that's in our world. Now I'm not talking about the first world problems. 
and you all know what I mean. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I, Rosie and I, ran a Spartan race. I don't know if you've ever heard of Spartan races. It's like a four to five mile obstacle course uh, during which you climb over walls and swim through muddy pools and carry large rocks and uh, generally put yourself through all kinds of torture for only $95 a person. <laughs> and at the end of the race, I was like, I feel like a dead man. And then I woke up this morning and thought, no, now I feel like a dead man. (laughs) Entirely self-inflicted first world kind of problem. I was speaking with a friend this week who gave me a a great illustration of how we just have a tendency to complain. Human nature has this tendency to complain. It came after he'd listened to a Holocaust survivor give a very moving and compelling account of his time in the death camp. Now, after the man had given this speech... Um, my friend was able to be with him and they walked through uh, the buffet line to share dinner together and the Holocaust survivor was complaining about the quality of food that was in the buffet line. Right? Now I understand, I'm not uh, kind of judging this guy, I'm saying I'm ho- rather he kind of holds up a mirror for us. Are we not a people who by God have been brought through the Holocaust in order to complain about the buffet line? We have a tendency to complain, a tendency to struggle with first world problems. But that's not what I'm talking about. Tell me the depth of suffering in our world that is horrendous and is horrific. Think perhaps globally of the war and terror that's been wrought across our globe through ISIS and other such organizations. I don't know if you've seen the videos that ISIS produce. If you've not, I'm not encouraging you to go and see them, but they're highly stylized, very well-produced, Hollywood-quality videos of them rounding up their enemies and killing them. Beheadings, drownings, setting people on fire. Acts of barbarism played out in a very... uh, stylized scene and, and how I wish that evil and suffering was just in the nations that our nation would be free from that but this week perhaps you've seen the videos coming out from Planned Parenthood speaking no better of our culture than theirs how is it that in this day in this age we would pick through a petri dish of baby parts casting aside hand and foot in order to find a lung Barbarism rarely seen in the course of human history. And then how we wish that suffering were just global or or even national, but we all know in our own lives that we've experienced great suffering too. Certain things in my life, probably worse things perhaps in yours, situations you've been in that have caused you great suffering, great sorrow, great pain. And then you add to this kind of evil the inexplicable things that happen. Globally, the tsunami. Nationally, perhaps Katrina. Personally, when cancer comes and we just shrug and don't know what to make of it. This week, I found myself asking, God, why do you allow this? Why do you allow this? Suffering is indeed a challenge to any believer. And so we can understand, can we not, why the reality of suffering, the existence of suffering, has, said, has led some to reject God, to reject his existence. 
the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume popularized this notion when he said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Or is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. One skeptic puts it this way. God allows terrible suffering in the world. So he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible does not exist. How can a good God allow suffering? Three considerations for you in response to this question this morning. The bubble to the surface as I read and thought and prayed and and studied this week and I invite you just to reflect upon them with me as we work our way through this time. First consideration in response to this question is really on the level of of intellect or, or logic for us to consider that the existence of suffering shouldn't be seen as evidence against the existence of God. The existence of suffering shouldn't be seen as evidence against the existence of God because the existence of suffering is in fact not evidence against the existence of God. You see, in the face of great suffering and the kind of suffering that we've spoken about already together from terrorism to abortion to to cancer and struggle, there's an emotional appeal for us to abandon God, to find solace in saying, well, surely he then doesn't exist. But this notion, this emotional appeal, doesn't actually make sense when we we think about it. Uh, In line with David Hume and the skeptic I quoted a moment ago, Philosopher J.L. Mackey once said, If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God of the Bible it could not exist. Some other God or, may, or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Now, within this emotionally compelling argument, do you not sense the great intellectual pride that lurks within. Namely, if I don't see a reason for suffering in the world, there can be no reason for suffering in the world. If, if I don't understand it, it's therefore under, un, not understandable. If with my great intellect... I have not been able to wrap my arms around why this is happening. There can be no explanation for why this is happening. See, friends, we know and want to be humble to realize that just because we can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen, it doesn't mean there isn't a good reason for why God is allowing something to happen. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga illustrates the, the fallacy behind this way of thinking by saying, imagine that you go camping. Now, step one you now know is check that you have poles for your tent. Okay? Um, full education you get here at NPC. So after checking that you have poles for your tent, imagine you go camping, Plantinga says, and uh, you've brought your, 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 your dog with you. And you uh, pitch, put the tent up and then you look in to see if your St. Bernard is in there. And if you look in and don't see your enormous slobbering 200-pound dog in your tent, it's safe to assume that she's not in your tent. However, if you pull back the curtain to look for a mosquito and don't see one in there, it's not necessarily safe to assume that there is no mosquito in your tent. 
And Plantinga says, many people assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of suffering, they'd be like the St. Bernard, not like the mosquito. That these reasons would be easily accessible to our minds and to our eyes. But there's no reason that that, in fact, should be the case. We need to be humbled from this intellectual pride. In many ways, that's what's taking place in the book of Job. Flick with me back to chapter 38. After Job has remonstrated with the Lord, the Lord suddenly appears to him to humble him lest he fall into this kind of intellectual pride. Listen to the questions the Lord answers him. Starting in verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you. And you make it known to me. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where, where were you then? Tell me if you have understanding. Or, Job, who determined its measurements? <laughs> Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Job, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or verse 8, Job, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 16, Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Verse 18, Job, have you comprehended, comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Now, God continues this series of rhetorical questions all the way through to the end of chapter 38. And then he picks up again in chapter 9 and continues all the way through to chapter 40. And then he continues all the way through chapter 40 through to chapter 41. And then all the way through chapter 41 until we end up at verse, uh, chapter 42. Chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters that go home and read this afternoon. Wash over the reader to help you see... <laughs> God's ways are not your ways. God's ways are not our ways. And just because we can't understand something doesn't mean that it's not understandable. Just because we can't see a reason for suffering doesn't mean that there isn't a reason for suffering. Tim Keller comments, If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, so if you believe in a God that's so great and so powerful that you're going to be upset with him because he hasn't acted as you would have liked him to, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you could never know. If God's so good and so powerful that he would be able to stop it, he's also so good and so powerful to have reasons that we don't yet understand. If we can see reasons for at least some of the pain in life, isn't it possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for it all. It's the hard truth of our, our first consideration that the existence of suffering in the world shouldn't be used as, as evidence against God's existence because it isn't evidence against God's existence. The second consideration comes from this book. 
that we've been uh, working through this summer and uh, been giving away in our welcome centre. I actually heard that we have given away all of our copies. This is the last one. If you want this copy, come and see me. We'll uh, try and buy more copies for, for next week. But if you would like to come and take a copy of this book or perhaps give it to, to a friend who's, who's asking questions, please uh, know that these are our gift to you and we'll try to get more for, for next week. But in this book, uh, Tim Keller takes our first point and he really uh, takes it a step farther to argue that not only is the is it that the existence of suffering shouldn't be seen as evidence against God, but in fact, the existence of suffering may be, if anything, evidence for the existence of God. Not only does does suffering not disprove God, but in fact, the existence of suffering might, in fact, be evidence for the existence of God. How is this so? Well, there's no doubt, of course, that inexplicable suffering is a challenge to those of us who believe in God. However, you could argue that, if anything, it's a greater challenge to those who reject the existence of God. Keller provides the example of C.S. Lewis, who originally rejected God because of the cruelty in life. He saw the suffering of the world and concluded that there could be no God. But then Lewis came to realize that evil was now more problematic for him as an atheist than it had been when he considered being a believer. And in the end, he even argued that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than against it. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Lewis recognized that his objection to God was based on a sense of of justice, that people ought not to suffer. But he then realized that without God, he had no basis for this conclusion, that people ought not to suffer. Francis Schaeffer, 20th century pastor and theologian, put it this way, with nothing higher than human opinion upon which to base judgments, The justification for seeing crime and cruelty as disturbing is destroyed. The very word crime and even the word cruelty lose meaning. There is no final reason on which to forbid anything. If nothing is forbidden, then everything is possible. You see what Lewis and Schaefer are pushing us to consider. They're saying, if you are outraged at suffering in the world, and you ought to be, And if you're sorrowful about suffering in the world, and and you ought to be, why are you outraged? And why are you sorrowful? Where did you get this sense of justice from? Where did you get the sense that things ought not to be this way? And in fact, if you are sure that the world contains unjust suffering, you're assuming the reality of some sort of standard by which to make your judgment. Namely, Lewis and Schaefer would say, God. In other words, they're saying to reject God because suffering exists, it's kind of like going into a restaurant, ordering a meal, 
being dissatisfied with it and therefore saying that the chef doesn't exist. Your very objection presupposes that the chef does. And so the very objection to suffering presupposes that there is a standard, that there is a God. The problem of of tragedy, suffering, injustice is a problem for everyone. And so it's a mistake to think that if you abandon belief in God, you somehow make the problem of evil easier to handle. In reality, you move from frying pan to fire. Last quote from Alvin Plantiga. He says, Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? So if God didn't exist, and this is all a cosmic accident, can there really be such a thing as wickedness? I don't see how. There can only be such a thing if there's a way that rational creatures are supposed to live and obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort, and thus no way to say there's such a thing as genuine appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. So that's our first two considerations. First of all, that the existence of suffering shouldn't be used as evidence against the existence of God. Secondly, taking that point a step farther, in fact, the existence of suffering may, if anything, be proof for the existence of God. But to be honest, for me, as I wrestled with this this week, it was really our third point that was by far the most powerful. Because you can take those first two points and say, well, okay, you got me. Logical, not tied. I have to accept there is a God. But there's definitely not the kind of God I want to follow. And that's why our third point is so important, which is, which is this. That the existence of suffering is of greatest concern to God. Greatest concern. Meaning, if you're outraged about suffering, and you should be, if you're sorrowful over suffering, and you should be, God is more outraged and more sorrowful than you or I will ever be. That we don't come to a God who we just have to accept exists in the midst of this, but to a God whose heart is moved by the reality of suffering and who is doing something about it. God's opposition to suffering can really be charted as we walk through the gospel story. Let's begin in creation. How much suffering was there in the world when God created it? Answer, zero. God created and designed us to flourish in Eden and nothing but pleasure came from his hand. A world free from sickness, free from disease, free from every tear. And this is his good design for us. Then what happens? Suffering is introduced to the world in the fall. By God's hand? No, by our hands. And what is God's response? One of my favorite verses is in verse 13 of Genesis 3. When he comes to Eve and he says, What have you done? What have you done? And isn't there a sense of heartbreak in that? He doesn't just come in anger, but with sorrow. 
Adam and Eve, of course, could have not known, could never have known the extent of suffering that would enter the world through their first act. Back there in Eden, they'd have had no sense of ISIS, no sense of abortion, no sense of abuse or cancer. But God, who knows the beginning from the end, knew what this evil had introduced to his perfect creation and knew the kind of suffering that would unfold because of it. And so he comes to her and he says, what is this you have done? Heartbroken. This creation will now be subject to such suffering. And so what does he do after creation and fall? Wash his hands of us? No. Moves into this time of redemption. This time of redemption where God is so moved by the suffering of his creation that he sends his son to do what? Suffer. Suffer. And suffer like no human being has, has ever suffered. We understand that on the cross it's not just a physical death but is in fact suffering the wrath of God that's being poured out upon every unjust action that has ever occurred. And so we have, what do we have? We have Jesus of the scars. If you read the poem that's printed on the front of the the bulletin, Google it this afternoon and read the rest of it. It's by Edward Shillito who was one of the minor prophets who emerged at the end of the First World War and wrote about the horrors of the trenches. And he said, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds but thou alone. Jesus of the scars, a God who comes not just in power but in weakness, coming to earth in a form we could kill so that through his scars we might be forgiven, so that through his suffering we might be forgiven, so that through his ultimate suffering we ourselves might never endure ultimate suffering. And so it's not a God who's disinterested, a God who's divorced from it, but a God who has Uh, enmeshed himself in the suffering of the world in order to end our suffering. And then what does he do? Fourth chapter of the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God has done something about suffering. He is doing something about suffering. And he will do something about suffering. And he promises us that on that day, on that great day, every tear will be wiped and all suffering will end. Did you listen to David's prayer? He prayed that from D.C. to L.A., from America to the Middle East, God would right every single wrong. Now, what do you think? You think like, David just got excited this morning? You know, he got up and he had a couple too many cups of coffee and he was fired up and he was like, put me in, coach, I'm doing this, let's pray. Um, he probably did do all that, right? <laughs> but it's still not hyperbole. It's still not hyperbole. Why? Because God has said he'll do it God has said he'll do it so you can't call upon him to overturn any wrong that he hasn't already promised he will and you can't call upon him to heal any disease that he hasn't already promised to heal and you can't call upon him to wipe away any tear that he hasn't already promised to wipe away the fourth chapter of the gospel this great work of restoration assures us that Not just does God care about suffering, but that suffering will end. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the closest we'll ever get to hell 
is life here on earth. And our heart breaks, does it not? That for those who are not in Christ Jesus, the closest they'll ever get to heaven is life here on earth. And so we come to this God who in creation, fall, redemption, restoration has shown us that he has the greatest concern when it comes to suffering. Now, what my soul has needed this week and what I think your soul needs this week isn't so much the logic of the first few points, isn't the evidence of our first two points, but an encounter with the God of this third point. We don't make sense of suffering in our world merely by trying to get intellectual arms around it, though of course the Christian faith has substantive, logical, powerful answers for us. No, real change is made, not by evidence, but by encounter. This is what made the difference for Job. Verse 5 of chapter 42, you see it there? He says, My ears had heard of you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, as the ESV puts it. In other words, God, I, I knew you were great, and I knew you were mighty, and I'd heard about God, you have a reputation, okay? And, I, and I'd heard of it. But now, my eyes have seen. Job then says, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes, repenting for the intellectual pride that had been bearing down on him. In other words, what we see in this passage is an encounter with God that radically reorders Job's approach to suffering. And in the gospel, we have an encounter with God that will radically re-earn our approach to suffering as well. The God who cares, the God who's acted, the God who will act. I don't need more reasons, I need more gospel so that I might reorient my approach in light of his good word to us. Because I've got to be honest, Part of the reason it's been a hard week for me in prep is the reality of evil had a greater hold on me than the reality of the gospel. When, when I studied, I was sort of more uh, held by uh, sin than grace. And so what do we need? We need the word we started on. Death, where is thy victory? Death, where is thy sting? In the gospel, we have a good news that overwhelms and consumes the greatest horrors we could ever know. And it's in light of that good gospel that we want to orient our approach to suffering. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for clear eyes, clear eyes to see the need that is in our world and your call to um, move out into a world of, of, of suffering and challenge and difficulty and sorrow. We don't want to bury our heads in the sand. We want to uh, be active in this world. But Lord, as surely as we want to be realistic about that, we don't want to be naive about the power of the gospel. We never want to be more held by sin than we are by grace. Surely your gospel overwhelms all things, even death, that we, Lord, can have hope in the face of even the most trying of circumstances. So Lord, we do ask that you would help us to chew and consider and reflect upon the evidence 
but more than that, that we would be caught up in the encounter, the encounter with you, our great God, who's shown us through creation, fall, redemption, and restoration that you are concerned about our suffering, that you've done something about it, and that you'll continue to do something about it until everything sad comes untrue. These things we pray in the perfect name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.